Hi guys! Our today's guest is Robert Gerlach from Clean. Robert is sharing his personal story, but also his research process that ultimately led him to focus on regenerative agriculture methods. And that's our topic today. Regenerative agriculture methods could, uh, widely adopted, uh, be a huge part of solving the issue of carbon emissions. But not only, they could also benefit not only farmers, but also food industry, soil, and ultimately also as consumers. But the problem is that For example, in Germany, only 1% of all farmers adopted such solutions. Why so little? What are the blockers and challenges uh, of adopting them widely? Watch the episode and learn. Hello, guys. Welcome back to Founding Impact. Uh, Our today's guest is Robert Gerlach from Klim, and we are going to talk about a fascinating topic and a very hot one, uh, regenerative agriculture. What does it mean? We'll explain in a second. But first, Robert, welcome to our studio. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me here today. Hello. Um, So, as I mentioned already, we're going to talk about regenerative agriculture, but before we jump into that, can you tell us a little bit about your story? What led you to get yourself involved in uh, trying to improve the the farming methods uh, and generally generally agriculture? Yeah, so my journey actually started in academia and engineering sciences, and I was, that was quite a while ago, working on improving the efficiency of aircraft engines. So that was my very first touch point with uh, the topic of sustainability. And ever since then, I always and only worked on projects that had an impact, mostly environmental impact, but also socioeconomic impact. And uh, that's probably also because I just couldn't bring myself to work on anything else. And it was always product related. So I started out working on physical products, hardware essentially, but then quite quickly from 2012 onwards, I focused on digital products. And those were mainly products that uh, focused on, if they were in the environmental space, in the emission reduction space, they were focusing on efficiency gains. So let's improve the efficiency of a driver by 5%, or let's enable homeowners to reduce their energy consumption by 10%, for example. And those incremental changes are obviously super important and essential if we want to achieve the climate targets. But at some point I felt uh, it's becoming obvious that just by reducing our emissions, we won't achieve the climate targets. And so I started to research solutions that could actually actively capture CO2 from the atmosphere. And I approached that topic quite systematically, similarly to what the Drawdown project in the US did and looked at a broad range of technologies and um, compared them regarding what's the absolute impact, how quickly can you achieve that impact, scalability, and also, of course, how neglected is that solution, uh, personal fit and business case. And so I looked at a range of those uh, technologies, and the more I looked at them, the more I realized how really absolutely important it is to to actually work on negative emissions technologies. Um, Essentially, the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere, the time I started looking, was around 416 parts per million. The general consensus is that we need to get it down to 350 parts per million in order to have any chance at a stable, uh, livable climate. And um, so also, uh, it's, it's still at the time, it was 2019, I began to look at those tech technologies was still a very neglected space and um, then if you look at the list of technologies there 
regenerative agriculture is definitely one of the main applications we have to achieve those negative emissions amongst many other advantages that regenerative agriculture can generate. And so um, that was that's what started the interest. And then I looked at, first of all, what's the real potential? What's the scientific evidence that you can indeed sequester large amounts of CO2 via soil carbon buildup? And uh, what, are the, um, what are the drawbacks? Where's the catch, essentially? And once that was clarified and it became clear that indeed there's massive benefits of regenerative agriculture, which I'm happy to dig in deeper, the next question was simply, what's the problem here? Why aren't farmers transitioning more quickly? And that's how the story started. And um, I'm really curious. Obviously, you ended up uh, in reg ag uh, sector, but what were other like top three uh, directions you were considering? If not the reg ag, what else would uh, would land on your plant? So another topic I looked at was afforestation. Um, so the um, absolute CO2 sequestration, uh, sequestration potential of afforestation or reforestation is also enormous. Looked at that, actually went quite far, but in the end um, I didn't manage to come up with a really suitable impact and business case that, that really works. And the other, the other one was carbon capture utilization. So looking at various technologies with which you could, for example, um, capture CO2 from the atmosphere to produce um, proteins or, or oils um, or other uh, materials. And there I felt that scalability was an issue. So um, the, the main criteria in terms of scalability were obviously, can we scale that solution up quickly enough to make a dent? Because if we're looking at the climate crisis right now, we really require urgent, massive action. And um, I felt um, there's much more potential in other, other areas. I mean, there are many, many interesting technologies out there. And I think we need to work on all of them simultaneously. So not trying to say that um, carbon capitalization is, is not a suitable path. I just was probably too impatient to focus on that one. And w- would you mind sharing a bit more about the methods that you used to, used to, to, to do your research? Uh, we've been for a similar process with our own company. It took us probably longer than we assume it's going to take. Uh, and I'm I'm very curious, like how people do do ideation phase. Is it w- was it more from like coming from your interest? Was it more from some sort of like particular process that you had in place? My my process, not sure whether it's a very common one, was really. I started to look at first of all. I looked at what are all the available technologies. Um, so it's basically top of the funnel, and that was a list of. I mean, to, to combat uh, climate change. Exactly mm-hmm. to to combat climate change with a with a focus also on already negative emissions, and so that was a list of dozens of of technologies, and then I started to dig a little bit deeper through normal internet research, and mainly look at um, what's the evidence that that might work, looking at a few scientific papers, looking at which startups already tackling that space looking at which R&D institutions might have looked into that already. So thankfully, in many of these solutions, there was a lot of uh, research out there already. For example, the European Union has done a lot of work on carbon capitalization. They did workshops and there were conferences where you could, with a little bit of research, come up with 
really nice proceedings, PowerPoints that really save you a lot of work. With that, you only go so far, of course. You can scratch the surface and you might be able to answer the question, is that something which roughly ticks some of the boxes in terms of scalability and um, absolute impact? How certain is that? You will be able to answer roughly the question how neglected or not that space is. And um, of course, as you dig deeper, you'll be able to answer the question, do I really, am I, am, I, am I excited about this? Is that something that I could imagine spending the next five, seven, ten years of my life dealing with? And so as you then dig deeper and your short list becomes shorter, as it should, you can then um, decide to take the next step. And the next step for me was I would typically set up calls with the main academics and our engineers and pioneers, including startup founders in the space. And I tried to understand more. And in some of the spaces, there, there wasn't much uh, startup work going on at the time. In the subspaces, of course, afforestation a lot. But then if you dig into a few deeper topics, such as tree survival rates, um, then you, you realize hmm, there's not so much going on. And then you start to, you, you can build a map of, okay, so what's the actual, let's say, journey that you have there in order to solve the problem? What are all the steps that you need to do? In which of those steps um, do we lack solutions? And what are the main problems on those individual steps? So super systematic, in fact. And then you sometimes come up with very interesting results. For example, um, you might see that whilst many startups are working on one part of the problem, according to most practitioners, and those can be found amongst NGOs who have been working on afforestation projects, for example, for, for decades, you realize that the real fundamental underlying problems are totally different from the ones that are being addressed. And then if you speak with this nice mix of practitioners, academics, you also get a more of a systems perspective. So, for example, again, looking at the topic of afforestation, it's not just simply a topic of planting lots of trees. You need to actually create the conditions on the ground such that these forests that are being generated remain on the ground, that managing the forest, keeping the forest alive, is actually more attractive than cutting it down in five years or ten years again and uh, using land for, for crop. And um, as you get that broader systems perspective your understanding of the topic deepens and you'll be able to at some point make a choice to to go down one direction or the other. And I personally I have to say that I found this process quite enjoyable because um, not only do you understand what you would like to work on, what where, where, where there's actually a need for more people working on. You don't want to be the, the 15th startup working on topic X just because it's popular. In fact, you might actually want to be a company that works on something that nobody else works on. Super important point, in my opinion. Um, as you do that, you, you not only learn whether you like the topic, but also what the real problems are and where to really dig deep and try to find a solution. And um, you shouldn't draw it out too much, this process. Uh, at some point, you need to, of course, through startup spirit, build something and learn. 
But I think in general, my biased opinion is that today we often don't take the time to actually understand a, dop a topic fully in depth. And then we come up with solutions that scratch the surface and don't address the fundamental problems. Or even worse, we might come up with solutions that do something that's good, but on the other hand, create a lot of negative impact that we are not aware of. So, yeah, I personally enjoyed that process. I really like the, the order that you followed in your engineering mind. I'm also a person that would rather have some sort of structure. So it's really a, like a pleasure hearing how you did, like starting with the beginning of the funnel and then filtering out what wasn't, let's say, meeting your requirements. Uh, but at the very end, you decided to go into regenerative uh, agriculture. What were the top three reasons for that? There was, on the one hand, the simple reason that there's a huge impact you could have if you manage to actually get farmers to transition quickly, a large enough scale. Um, second reason was that, um, personally, I've been interested in the whole topic of afforestation and uh, agriculture much more than in, for example, ideas that relied lots on, on, on chemical processes, for example. Although, of course, soil carbon buildup is chemical process, biochemical process. Um, the, the other was that I felt after gaining a little bit more understanding of what all the reasons are, I found this problem is so difficult, so challenging to solve, that's exciting. And it requires so many sort of levers to, to switch, to make a dent. I felt, wow, this, this is really difficult, this is really challenging this can occupy me for years. So um, as much as I like the process of ideation, I don't want to do it every two years or so. You know? Yeah, I think that the challenges are going to, we're going to focus on that as well. But before, maybe I think that's the right time to actually explain to some of the listeners who might not necessarily know what the regenerative agriculture is. Yeah. If you could. Food production as a sector in our, uh, in our global economy is responsible for around a quarter of our greenhouse gas emissions. And this, these emissions come to a large degree from the supply chain, from, from food, from agriculture. So um, 80% around. The rest is packaging, transportation, and so forth. And of those emissions, again, a large amount comes from the destruction of our soils. So our soils contain hummus. Hummus is the organic content in our soils and it consists of around 59% carbon. And this carbon, stored in form of hummus, if you use certain practices, for example, if you don't keep your fields covered with crop permanently, if you don't have a strong permanent root penetration, if you disturb the soil a lot, if you don't have um, rich organic life in the soils. And if you don't have a broad crop rotation, so if you don't have enough uh, diversity in what you grow, essentially, then you slowly destroy this hummus. And each year you reduce a little bit, or you destroy a little bit of this. And as you can imagine, if you destroy the hummus, the carbon contained in that hummus will be released into the atmosphere in form of CO2. And now to put a few numbers behind that, we have, since the beginning of modern agriculture, emitted almost 500 gigatons of CO2 from soils into the atmosphere. How much is that? We 
globally emit around 40 gigatons each year right now from all sources, from all emission sources. So it's a huge number. And there are some estimates, they vary of course, that say that we have lost 50% of the soil carbon buildup in our arable lands. And that's a huge problem because, of course, on the one hand, climate change is bad in and of itself. But which sector is suffering the most? Arguably, it's agriculture. And it's not only that through climate change we get more and more frequent droughts which threaten our harvests at a time where we are increasing the population of the planet still and need to feed billions more in the future. Also, if you destroy the humus content in your soils, you are reducing the fertility. And uh, it's difficult to generalize that over all arable land, but um, there are some voices that say we have only few harvests left in our land. So it's, it's very bad on many levels. And there is, however, a way with which you can reverse this process of soil carbon loss. And that is generally called regenerative agriculture or carbon farming. And it follows a range of so-called regenerative principles, which are exactly the opposite of what I said uh, goes wrong. Essentially, you try to keep your soil covered throughout the year. You try to have strong, deep, and ideally permanent root penetration. You want to have a rich organic soil life. You want to reduce tillage as much as you can. So don't plow the, um, the fields too deeply if not necessary. And if you go really far, you want to also integrate um, livestock in a sustainable way. And if you do that, then you, instead of losing a little bit of hummus each year, you are building it up. And as you build it up, you draw CO2 from the atmosphere and store it in form of soil carbon. And that, just to give you an idea, the estimates of how much CO2 you can capture and store from the atmosphere, they vary, but optimistic scenarios say that you could capture and store up to 11 billion tons per year globally. And that's a huge amount because... Um, yeah, we need to capture and store around 13 billion tons of CO2 each year in order to achieve the 1.5 degree temperature target. So um, even if it's just a tenth of that, it would still be a significant contribution. But the beauty about regenerative agriculture is that it is not just a tool to fight climate change. That's what's generally promoted as the cool thing about regenerative agriculture and carbon farming. But you could argue the role of agriculture should not primarily be to solve the climate crisis. The role of agriculture should actually be to produce food in a sustainable way, nutritious food in a sustainable way. And the beautiful thing about regenerative agriculture is that as you build up humus, as you build up soil carbon, you improve the nutrition availability, the fertility of the soil. And this way, um, you also as you, if you build up humus, improve the water retention, you also massively improve your resilience towards these new climatic conditions. So the water retention rates in soils gets uh, increased significantly. And if you would do a project where you would show a regenerative farm next to a non-regenerative farm in a drought scenario, the regenerative farm would, would uh, survive much better. Um, as you 
improve the soil quality, you arguably get more nutrient-rich food in the long term. And there are studies that indicate that food quality would increase, that you have more tasty, more nutrient-rich food. Those studies are still not entirely conclusive, so there's a little bit debate going on there, so it's difficult to make that claim. But um, I think uh, we'll learn more in the next few years as uh, the focus on regenerative agriculture increases. You have many other benefits. Food security is super important right now. The beautiful thing about regenerative is you can keep your yields or even increase them. And it's super important to consider that, that factor because if you look at um, biofarming, biological farming, oftentimes it comes with a reduction in yields. And that's, of course, horrible because as you reduce the yields on your soils, somebody else needs to produce the food uh, that can't be produced there. And so the climate footprint of uh, organic farming is in some cases worse than that of conventional farming. With regenerative, you don't have that problem. You improve the water quality, for example, uh, through um, the amazing fact that as you improve the fertility of your soils, you need less fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides. And of course, you then have less residue going to the groundwater. Um, and as you now can imagine, there's a business case for the farmer here. All those benefits that I've mentioned, once they really kick in, result in less crop loss for the farmer. The farmer adapts for the future uh, scenarios where we have much more frequent droughts. The farmer will need less fertilizer input, uh, input and uh, the like, and therefore he needs to spend less. Um, right now, the fertilizer prices are increasing rapidly, already before the war. And um, then again, at some point in the future, I'm convinced farmers will be able to sell their produce at a higher price from regenerative. So it's a wonderful uh, form of agriculture and one of the most potent and sane things we could do. So like all the benefits that you've mentioned, it, it totally sounds like no-brainer. We All of the farmers should start uh, using regenerative agriculture uh, methods, but it's not like that. Do you know what's the percentage actually of um, farmers using reg-ag methods versus the conventional one? It's difficult to say. So there's a broad range of regenerative methods. Some are more simple, such as cover crops or catch crops, and others are much more complex, such as, for example, using agroforestry or silver pastoral systems. And of course, when I say simple, um, nothing's really simple if it comes to soil. Even a catch crop, choosing the right seed composition is, is difficult. But if you just look at some of those, let's call it entry drug methods, uh, then I would say that 50% uh, of the farmers or, or more have experience using them, some form of experience. But if you would then say which farmers truly can be truly considered a regenerative farmer, in Germany I would say uh, less than 1%. Um, so th this is all obviously gross generalization because so far there is no unified definition of what regenerative agriculture is. There, there is a consensus of what it does and therefore there is a consensus of, consensus of what can be considered a regenerative method. Um, and yeah, so the, the main question now of course is if it's so cool, why aren't farmers using it more? And that was really what started the whole story of Klim. So based from your uh, very comprehensive uh, introduction to the problem and potential solutions, I can imagine this problem needs to be solved on, on many different levels. 
So how does it specifically work in your case with, with Klim? Mm -hmm. So the a really fun part in the beginning was to speak with farmers. We spoke with hundreds of them to understand what's really preventing them. What are the barriers to adoption? And there's really, there's many, but three major ones. One is a no-brainer, there's transition finance. If you use regenerative methods for the first time, you need to purchase the seeds for the cover crops, for example. Perhaps you might even need to lend or even buy uh, new parts of machinery. And uh, you have a little risk, of course. You're not super um, adept at, at, at using those methods. So also, uh, in the beginning, this transition is essentially results in a loss of profitability temporarily. And that needs to be covered for the farmers. They need money. Especially as farmers are already finance tight. So they, they are not the, the ones that, um, that really um, amass a fortune in our society. The second thing that you need to achieve is you need to educate farmers. And that sounds almost um, a little bit patronizing because what would anyone want to tell farmers? But with regenerative methods, as I mentioned, whilst they all know what a cover crop or a catch crop is, the devil is in the detail. And the detail here is which seed composition do I need for my particular soil type in my climate region, in this particular crop rotation, and uh, what does um, the government say here? And all those questions, they need to be answered. And then the farmer needs to understand, all right, if I use this particular seed composition, what will be the impact on my main crop afterwards? What will be the impact on weeds? What will be the impact on water retention? And all this uncertainty needs to be removed for farmers to adopt those methods quicker. And again, everything we do is about increasing the speed with which farmers adopt those methods. And the third barrier to entry is one where we think becomes really interesting. I think we all know that farmers have been marginalized at the end of the supply chain for decades or centuries, or you could even say forever since the agricultural <laughs> revolution. And um, so they, they are really in some form of crisis of meaning. They see that their, um, their profitability is dropping over the past decades. They see that the regulation is getting tougher on them. And in many countries, certainly in, in Germany and also in the US, they often portrayed as climate sinners because we know that food production contributes to, to um, greenhouse gas emissions. And so they're wondering, why should I still do this? Uh, I don't earn a lot. I, I don't get any appreciation. And so what they want is, they want the appreciation. They want to see that consumers care um, because um, in the end, it's the consumer who decides. And if a consu consumer cares, then that might result in higher prices and better living conditions for farmers. And what Klim is about and what we decided to do, and I can tell you that was a very controversial decision, at least at the time, was to tackle the problem holistically and to essentially solve all these three problems for farmers. Because again, the aim of Klim is to really accelerate the transition at a massive scale. And what we do is, on the one hand, for farmers, we have a platform, a digital companion that offers them all the know-how and the knowledge they need. They can document um, their transition. 
They can verify their ecosystem services, not only how much CO2 say they sequester, how much soil carbon they build up, but also the biodiversity benefits they generate and earn a little bit of money uh, with that. And corn um, can also, of course, exchange ideas with other farmers, real digital companion for, for farmers that um, is basically yeah, a smart companion for, for regenerative agriculture. And on the other hand, we work with food companies and um, those food companies um, use our Klim label. We've developed a consumer label with which we enable consumers through their food choices to support farmers in their transition. And um, that works really well, even though many elements of our solution might sound totally counterintuitive. They might sound, might sound weird, but it's, it's really working. And I think the reason it's working is because the time is right for farmers to transition for many reasons. And also, consumers really changed in the last two years and even in the last year even. So they want to make a difference with their food choices and food companies want to enable their consumers to do so. And this, this helps to really drive the change here. So if you could focus a little bit uh, on the farmer's part mm -hmm. of your mm -hmm. business, like yeah. you said yourself, you had a conversation with hundreds of farmers, you learn what uh, what are the blockers, what are the needs. Would you say uh, with what you offered as a claim, with the, with the business model you've developed, how easy is to convince them um, to give it a try? As you can imagine, uh, well, perhaps for the, for the viewers or the listeners, in general, the scheme that many companies in the regenerative agriculture space use is the farmer proves that he is capturing and storing CO2 in the soil and somebody pays him for the ton of captured and stored CO2. And what's really important is that you need to design the whole process in a way that's farmer-friendly and farmer-centric. And if you do so, then you can really succeed. And what does a farmer-centric process look like? So in order to answer that question, it really helps to speak with farmers and see what they don't like. And what they don't like is that somebody tells them what to do and forces them to go through a really bureaucratic process that takes a lot of time, is boring, and in the end, often not, often not worth the money they get. And on top of that, in the end, they don't even get the the high, the a large share of whatever revenue is generated. That's what farmers don't like. And if you do something that's the opposite of all that, that actually gives choice to the farmers, that enables farmers to prove and document what they do in a user-friendly way, and where the farmers can earn and uh, earn a fair amount for what they do, then you'll succeed. And on top of that, if you then can also prove that you truly have the interests of the farmer at heart. So, for example, that you're not there to sell them your product and um, actually force them into a lockdown in some form of um, dependency on you, um, where, again, the farmer is the, uh, is the, is the one who, who doesn't really benefit, then you will also succeed. And if you then on top of that, can build a strong community amongst your farmers, then I think you, you have a good chance to, to convince farmers to join you and try your solution. 
I personally believe that the future of um, digital f digital agricultural products really rests on whether you develop a farmer-centric product. And farmers, of course, are super smart. They are the, 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 the first entrepreneurs, essentially. They need to manage their farm. They need to do it really smartly because times are tough. And they all know when they're being fooled by some company that wants to uh, push them into some sort of contract that's not really in their interest. So you need to avoid that. Um, and then also have conversations with them. When we started Klim, we are a product company. We focus on great product design, great UX, UI, and always engaging with our farmers. And um, when we looked at some of the products in the agricultural space, uh, you might wonder how often they actually do speak with uh, farmers and how, how closely they incorporate them in the product design process. And um, I think if you do that well, then, then you can achieve those goals. And what about uh, the digitalization of the industry in total? Like from some of the conversations we had with uh, companies that are also engaged uh, in agriculture in general, um, sometimes there's a word that for the farmers using an application, mobile application, for example, it might not be like the first choice of a tool to do whatever is needed to be done around in the farm. How is, it, how is it from your experience? Is the digitalization actually a blocker? Or in your case, as you said, they are looking for something simpler and less formal, uh, less paperwork, uh, and that works for your advantage? So the honest answer is, um, it's, it's difficult to say, but I have a feeling. And my feeling is that if you approach farmers saying, look, here's a process that you've been doing your whole life through, let's say, personal relationships with a consultant or through another method, paper-based process. And that has become a habit. And you simply say, look, here's a digital version of that process. It makes your life easier. Why don't you use it? Then you'll be probably surprised at how little that works and how often farmers say, I'll stick to my habits. And um, I think you probably don't need to be two times better or ten times better. You need to be a lot of times better. And I think that's been a challenge probably in, in lots of digital farming products. However, in, the, in this case, in regenerative agriculture, we're doing something new. We are enabling farmers to generate income through a completely new business model for which there was no paper-based or fax-based or consultancy-based process before. And so, as they do it for the first time, it's easy to, to choose a digital version. And I think that's why we don't see any problems. In fact, the opposite. Lots of farmers frequently give us ideas which we can then implement that, that are picked up by the farmers or what they would like to see in a digital product that really helps them. Um, so, connectivity, of course, is always mentioned also What's often mentioned as a as a counter argument is farmers aren't aren't super young, but um, we don't see that really. I remember that when Klim started, one of the worries was really will farmers use an app. So it was one of the very first hypotheses we we validated. And uh, to tell you the truth, we couldn't believe it at first, the results from the surveys, that they all said they would use it. We thought it must be some form of 
um, mistaken the way we formulated the question, but it's it's really working. So the way I um, the way I understand it is. Um, in order to have a successful product in this space, you think what's really important is not to just simply digitize things on one hand, so have a digital version of the process that that farmers has been following for years, but rather change the flow, plus have a different business model, a different value proposition, why founders should actually use this specific solution. If it was simply like a journal, that wouldn't be enough for them to take the effort of of changing Um, their habits. uh, I would say that it's not what has to be done. Yep. I think um, some, so many processes in modern farming need to dig- need to be digitized. And you will not always have the luxury, as we do, that what you are trying to develop does not have a precedent. So in some cases, you just need to be so many times better than the um, existing solutions in order to be successful with the farmers. And I think that's what makes it a challenge. We are just lucky that we don't have that challenge. In order to develop a good product for farmers, to put the most general advice, just work with the farmers and listen to them. And that's a no-brainer. That's trivial. That's not surprising anyone. And I think if you apply basic product design um, practices, then um, and, and you speak with farmers, then you will realize what you should build. Um, and you will also realize when you shouldn't build what you thought you should build. Um, so I think it's difficult to give super general advice apart from what I already mentioned. Follow good product design, design thinking practices, and really don't take the farmer for a ride. Really build something where the business model behind your product has the farmer interests at heart. So for example, one topic I always find super fascinating is, of course, there are many companies that provide consultancy services or agronomist services to the farmers and also sell their own product. Of course, that's an obvious conflict of interest. And some countries in Europe are cracking down on that and actually creating laws that prevent companies from doing those two things. And so if you want to build a product that makes agriculture better, uh, then if you can, think of a way that really empowers the farmer and the farmers will see it, recognize it, and reward it, in my personal opinion. Farmers is one side of the, um, of the industry at all. Uh, and you believe, and I, I agree with you, that f- creating farmer-centric products is a way how to improve the industry in total and so- solve also the issue of um, uh, reducing the carbon emissions. But what about the other side? of the industry, for example, retail or what's whoever stands at the end of the, of the supply chain, uh, do they also are open for this transition into being more um, farmer-friendly, so to say, to give them a bigger uh, piece of the cake, so to say? Uh, does it, uh, this m- mind transition actually already happening or it's another part of the problem that it still needs to be solved? Uh, that's a million dollar, or should I say, billion dollar <laughs> question. I'm trying my best. And um, so, the answer is change is really happening. So, the change is driven from many uh, directions. So, food companies need to change their ways and actually actively become climate leaders. There's two reasons why food companies need to do that. A, they need to transition their supply chains if they want to secure their production 
their food production, if they want to secure um, um, the input. And of course, if they want to adhere to tightening regulation. The second reason is food companies need to cater to consumer demand for sustainable products. And, and then there's many other reasons, such as shareholder pressure. So um, many more institutional investors are really putting a lot of pressure on companies to change their sustainability or improve their sustainability performance. And I can tell you, I've been working in that space, even in consulting for, for many years, and there, there's a huge step change that happened perhaps two years ago where you could suddenly see all those consultants that said we are sustainability consultants and in fact mostly worked on topics that are not related to sustainability now finally have their uh, yeah they have enough to do because all companies um, want to change and so in the food industry the the motivation for the companies is they see consumers demand more climate friendly products they see they need to transition their supply chains then you have other drivers for example the science-based target initiative which finds more and more followers and therefore more and more companies that say that they would like to reduce their emissions by say 80 percent for 2050 then you have huge food companies that are making claims to in fact improve their supply chain performance including largest food company in the world who has given out the goal to transition 50 percent of the supply chain to regenerative by 2030 and so the awareness is there, the desire is there, and now regarding the consumer, what we have worked on is to create a narrative, create communication, excite consumers about the beauty of regenerative agriculture. Probably some of the listeners might have watched the Netflix documentary Kiss the Ground. Once you watch that, you'll realize how much potential is in the communication of regenerative agriculture? It's such an amazing story. It's positive. It's hopeful. You can actually do something for, for, for real. And we have seen that you can excite consumers about that. And that, of course, has a direct benefit for the food brands. Now, regarding the essential part of your question, if a consumer is willing to pay more, who's going to benefit from this additional revenue and how much will end up with the farmer. So the work there is still ahead of us. The question of who gets which part of the margin, who keeps what, what margin in the supply chain, this is something where we as Klim fight a battle on behalf of our farmers, of course, for them with the food companies. There's food companies who are super progressive and say, we have seen this can't go on. We need to actually improve the livelihoods of our farmers. In fact, we want to actively reach out to them. We want to um, have a better connection with them. We want to create more loyalty amongst the farmers to, to our, our brand. And other companies might still think in the classical ways, how can I press the margin as much as possible? I personally believe that as a consumer cares more about where their food is coming from and as consumers care more about how it's being produced they will create the pressure for food companies to refrain from totally marginalizing the farmers 
and we can facilitate that. And I think the good thing is that everyone benefits from um, from happier farmers who actually use practices that are more sustainable, that um, create higher quality food. So it's in there. It's in the interest of everyone in the supply chain, I believe. We talked about the perspective of farmers and uh, also food producers and consumers, and a lot about like psychology, psychological factors behind it, needs and expectations. I think it would be really great to um, have like a maybe a bit of a simplified picture of Klim to have a better understanding of what the, what what's the business model and what the product does, like in simple maybe terms from the perspective of farmer first and then consumer. Essentially. We have a digital companion that helps farmers transition to regenerative agriculture with various services. And amongst those services is a service that helps them quantify the ecosystem benefits they generate. Ecosystem benefits include captured CO2, but they also include biodiversity benefits you create. And we quantify a ton of captured and stored CO2 and we sell it to our partners, uh, predominantly in the food industry. And they communicate that they have purchased those credits via the Klim label. So the Klim label is on a product basis. So you would then say, as a food company, for example, I have a product range, oat milk, for example, which has a carbon footprint of, let's say, 200 gram per liter. And with a certain CO2 price, that requires me to pay this much to essentially um, label this product, and that money goes to the farmers. And that's the business model we have right now in a very simple way. So essentially, we enable the farmers to transition to regenerative agriculture. The farmers create ecosystem benefits, which we help the farmers monetize with uh, companies. And um, that's working because of two reasons. On the one hand, for the farmers, is the perfect time to transition right now. It's because climate change, unfortunately, is getting worse and the pressure to make your farm more resilient regarding the droughts is increasing. And secondly, the fertilizer prices are skyrocketing. Uh, they have quadrupled already before the war and now it's only getting worse and regulation is actually forcing them to re reduce less fertilizers anyway. So that's a good thing. And on the corporate side, there's a strong need for actually investing in regional carbon removal projects, carbon re uh, reduction projects. Because there's a feel that what's been done in the past, where you would say invest in offsets overseas, let's say forest projects, that often came with a reputation risk because it has been heavily scrutinized for many reasons. Sometimes it wasn't transparent enough. Sometimes it wasn't really based, uh, wasn't really permanent enough. It was not um, serious enough. Some other projects were, of course. And there's another reason why that is falling out of favor with companies is because if you do invest, at least in the food in industry, if you can invest within your own sector, that it's a much more congruent story you can tell. Um, and that doesn't even mention one of the other main reasons 
which is that if you want to somehow reduce emissions or in some cases some companies want to offset emissions so many companies in the regenerative space work with offsets and you should only ever offset if you have reduced your emissions to the maximum amount possible and the projects in overseas those tree planting projects often come at a price per ton carbon of three four five seven euros now that is so cheap that it creates it often creates a malincentive that you should rather just simply buy off your reductions rather than actually engage in the reductions you need and so it's within everybody's interest in a way to get the price for carbon up so that actually the choice for the companies whether they reduce their emissions first or simply buy cheap offsets isn't that easy anymore and where should that price go well i personally believe that the price should go where the true damage a ton of co2 creates in the atmosphere is and that's around 200 300 euros and i personally believe the prices are going up and so 200 300 this is a lot like in comparison to the view of let's say european union on the topic yeah i know um they are currently around 70 i think if you look at the compliance markets or so um but um there's a actually a readiness of some companies to pay that so for example if you look at the voluntary carbon credit market uh, of course very different from the compliance carbon credit market you see credits in price ranges from one to a thousand uh, euros and there's companies who are willing to pay those thousands euros um and we all know that those the times of the five euro projects five euro per ton projects they will be over soon because it's not sustainable there is there is one more thing i would like to clarify about um clim itself uh, and the value proposition towards farmers whenever we speak with um regenerative agriculture experts investors and other founders uh, they usually mention that one of the problems is risks that farmers need to take to do go through the transition and you really, in a very nice way, you solve the problem, at least to some extent, from my understanding of simply paying them to be, so, so their interest is somewhat secured. But is it really enough to cover the, the risk or this is just a nice baseline to start from? It is a wonderful and very effective baseline, but there are other ways you could reduce the risk. So what does reduce the risk of transition? The risk of transition is reduced if I know for sure that I will get a certain amount of money. The way Klim designed the process ensures that farmers have complete planning security and they know if they do X, they get Y in terms of money. So that reduces uncertainty and risk. Amazing. Second thing you need to do to reduce risk is to reduce the chance and the odds that you do some mistakes in the way you apply the regenerative method and end up with a detrimental scenario. So you need to provide knowledge. Again, something that Klim does. Um, a third way you reduce risk is to reduce market risk. That means to make sure that the market trend clearly favors higher prices for regeneratively sourced products. Also something that Klim does. There are many other ways you can reduce the risk. For example, as you can imagine, risk 
which industry typically deals with that insurance industry. So you could imagine already what kind of insurance products you could generate here. Um, so we have covered risk on three major fronts. There's many other ways you could do re reduce the risk. Other risks are, of course, regulatory risks. So European Union is currently working um, hard on reducing that. So I think we are in a very good way to actually achieving that, that goal. Um, and thankfully, this risk is only really significant in the first years of the transition, in my opinion. Got it, got it. Um, thank you so much, uh, Robert, for explaining all the details of the of the model and uh, the problem of regenerative uh, agriculture um, in itself. Uh, is there anything else that, anything important that you see that it's coming in the future as one of the biggest obstacles to to move forward, or is it like the trend is simply strengthening and it's it's going to be easier to to go forward? I think what I do really hope for is that. In, in view of the extreme situation we're facing right now with climate change, running away, really. I mean, we are really closing in on many points of no return. And if you look at India, for example, right now, with those insane temperatures of 60 degree plus, there is no more time. We need to act now. We need to act fast enough. And what I worry is that as the topic of regenerative agriculture becomes ever more popular, that more and more stakeholders will try to somehow um, make their points and we lose the pragmatism we need right now to really drive that movement. Give you a concrete example. There could be stakeholders who say, um, we should only move if it's perfect. So let's say if a farmer transitions their complete farm and if they apply this long catalog of methods. And because we have the power, we create those requirements. And then the overall impact of that is a negative one because they increase the barrier to entry. So the risk I see is that as more and more stakeholders get involved, we lose the pragmatism that we can currently employ to actually have the maximum absolute impact at the quickest possible time. And uh, thankfully, those organizations that are spearheading the movement and are moving towards this transition, they, of course, will have a say in that. So, um, as you can imagine, as a German myself, I, 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 I know how it feels like to, to, to deal with uh, bodies that are not very pragmatic. Um, so that's, that's something I see. But other than that, I think... All the boundary conditions in terms of fertilizer prices, climate change, make it the right time for farmers to transition. It's becoming a topic that gets much more publicity and therefore even the, the most conservative farmers will see the value in it. I see that the consumer mindset will only continue to shift in favor of this transition. So overall, I'm extremely bullish and optimistic about it. I think that's a, actually a very good summary of what we discussed today. So big shout out to everyone who would like to be a part of the transition and put so much needed pressure on the industry to move towards regenerative agriculture. Look out for clean labels and byproducts that you know that are coming from regenerative uh, farming.
Thank you very much, Robert. Thank you so much, Robert, for being with us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.